Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results. With your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Stephen Nutt. Some of you may remember Stephen from episode four, earning a seat at the strategic table. Stephen has over 27 years in accounting and finance, with 21 of those years spent within community banking. Most recently, he serves as a CFO at Community National Bank and Trust of Texas, an 830 million asset community bank with 15 branches across North Texas. Since joining the bank, he has overseen asset growth of 65%, stock value increase of 60%, and a 68% increase in tangible book value. Prior to joining Community National, Stephen held CFO, CRO, and controller positions with several banks in Georgia, with extensive experience ranging from de novo institutions to a $2 billion bank holding company. His focus has been in strategy pertaining to asset and liability management, acquisitions and valuation to maximize performance, balanced with risk management. Stephen is a licensed CPA and received an MBA from Bernal University and a BBA in economics from Harding University. He serves as a board member of YouthReach International, a worldwide organization that mentors vulnerable youth and helps prepare them for success. He also serves on the Accounting Program Advisory Committee and Strategic Planning Committee for Navarro College in Corsicana, Texas. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me again today. Thank you, Megan. Yeah, you were a guest way back in the beginning of the podcast, episode four, and I love the advice you gave in that episode on earning a seat at the strategic table. Now, here we are six months later, looking to end 2020 and thankfully begin a new year. And today we're talking about the mergers and acquisition landscape for 2021 and how to make the most out of M&A opportunities, whether you're looking to buy or sell. So let's get started. For all of those who haven't heard your previous episode, tell me about your career progression. How did you get to where you are today? Sure. It's really interesting that the topic's M&A because I'm in the banking industry, specifically community banking, and and that's one of the biggest um, industries that that produces a lot of M&A. And so I've actually been kind of a product of that through my career. I, I started in in banking in 1993 out of college. And a few years later, the bank I was with sold out to a larger bank. And then, um, so I took a few years and actually worked in a corporate at Waffle House in Atlanta, Georgia. And then, then decided I wanted to get back into banking because I really enjoyed the strategy side. I really enjoyed the, that work atmosphere. So I got back into that. And within a year, the bank that I was at sold again. So then I was at a, a new bank holding company we were actually more on the acquirer side at that point. So we had acquired a small bank in a small town and I moved over to that division and was the CFO for that division. And then within about a year of that, we sold out to SunTrust. So I was again looking for an opportunity and, and had to, at that point, change jobs and go to another bank as a CFO. And then opportunity uh, arose in Texas and I was able to to come out there to join Community National Bank and Trust in 2014 and been there almost seven years now as the CFO. And it's really a neat place and a neat opportunity because we it is a bank that's been around since the 1960s. So it, it's a lot longer and more stable. And, and we've been actually 
on the acquire side a couple of times since I've been there. So we're always looking for opportunities from a strategic standpoint. So that's, that's kind of how I got to where I'm at and, and why I'm interested and, and enjoy the M&A side of things. Tell me about Community National Bank and Trust. What do you think it is that makes them unique? I know a lot of people when they talk about their workplace, if they are enjoy it, talk about the people, but that really is something that's different about where where at is it's definitely different than where I've been at in the in the past. It's just a we really really put an emphasis on a people strategy and and keeping people. I, when I first started there seven years ago, they I was the first person that was in management that they had not hired for, or that they had not promoted from within that they had not had been there quite quite some time. So that was kind of a unique situation stepping into that. But I really see the benefits of that because we've got in our industry a lot of turnover and people just come and stay at our bank and that, and you can build a lot off of that. And I think that's a really good strategy to have. So I think people makes it unique. And then the second thing from a community banking standpoint that makes it unique is our community focus and our footprint. So the banks that I spent time with, community banks in Georgia, a lot of it was in the metro Atlanta area. So it was really the strategy was to to start a bank, build it, and then try to sell it. That was a, a strategy that worked for a long time. But what it what it doesn't do is allow you to to really make a connection with your community. And like I said, community national's been around since the sixties and really in the small towns that we're in, we are so involved in the community that people recognize us, people appreciate our help. And so then as we've started growing, we've tried to take a strategy of not to get into the certain metro areas. So we, we might be on the outskirts of DFW, but we really tried not to go inside because we want to be in communities where we can make an effect and affect people's lives. And I think that's been a strategy that's really paid off for us and and not chasing after the fastest growing banks for M&A. We kind of focused on areas where we think we could actually make a difference. And so I think those two things have really been something unique in my career that I've seen about Community National Bank. Yeah, it sounds like a great place to work, like a nice small town feel. You don't see too many banks that aren't like huge corporate conglomerates anymore. That's right. I think we were voted the one of the top places to work in Texas last year. And that's something that we really pride ourselves on. And I mean, when they do those, those type of surveys, we often get that family feel, you know, the con- that's a, the comment we hear often is feels like a family and it feels like I'm just working with my family. And so that, that's something we pride ourselves on and really try to focus on when we hire people. So how has 2020 differed from other years for the bank? What have been some of the unique challenges you've seen this year? Well, there, there's been quite a few, obviously, with COVID and, and how do you deal with that. It's interesting when we do a lot of business continuity planning, there's always been the, the pandemic. You know, you're supposed to run that scenario and we always would have it on paper. But when until you're actually inside of it, it you, you don't know how everybody's going to react. And so it, it's really changed some things. Work from home. I know that's been talked a lot about on the podcast over the last few months, but that's something that uh, banks, we just never thought really that you could do um, with your people. But we sent people home. Our IT department 
rolled out about 30 to 40 laptops where they could VPN and into the bank and, and work from home just like they were working in their office. So that flexibility and adaptability was something that came out of this year that was a unique challenge. Closing branches, uh, lobbies, not branches, but closing the lobbies. And that's something that, especially in the small communities where people come in and have coffee and talk and, and those type of things, it's relationships. So that's been tough for for us to do, but it is something that had to be done. And, and the good thing is that customers understand it this, this time. So that ended up having an effect on is how going forward, a lot of people are going to be out of the habit of going to the bank itself. And, and I've read some stuff about, you know, the scarring effect or things that change that never go back. So there's going to be a lot of people that realize they don't have to go back into a branch or into a bank. So how can we adapt and and service those customers uh, is something that's going to be a challenge going forward. But it is definitely something that we had a challenge this year. And then the other thing that I think was a big, unique challenge was just fewer meetings or fewer connections. Obviously, Zoom has, has helped out a lot with that. But we we as a bank met every Friday with all of the officers and it was just always a good way to stay in contact. I would give out some financial information or somebody might speak about compliance issues or just things to keep us all feeling like we're a part of the team. So it's been a challenge to make everyone still have that family and and that team feel. And so that's been a a big challenge for us because that was a big part of what we do. And then lastly, the, the in interest rate, you know, the interest rate environment has really <laughs> hurt us because the community banks, we really make money off the, the margin. And when they dropped interest rates, 150 basis points back in March, it, it really was a struggle for us to be able to, to try to continue to keep our margin up. Yeah, I imagine. Good for us consumers, but not very That's good right. for banks. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So as we look to begin 2021, what what is the M&A outlook? It's really interesting when you think about it. And, and I look at a lot of the different things and listen to a lot of, a lot of different experts on, on the topic. But M&A was down in 2020. It looks like it's going to be down about 57% from where it was in 2019. I was at a conference in January, an M&A conference, and the big buzzword, big thing that everybody was predicting was mergers of equals because you just had that happen uh, with a couple of super regional banks that were trying to they're trying to grow and and compete with the big four so there was a lot of buzz around that capital in the banking industry was at all-time highs so you you start thinking people are going to start deploying that capital in different ways which a lot of that is through acquisition so it was really poised to have a big year if you look at the January numbers of 2020, there, there was, there was record highs on m and in 2020. And then it is almost like the brakes just got slammed on in, in March and you, and you saw hardly anything for the next three or four months. We are seeing that start to pick up a little bit more towards the end of the year, which is a, is a good thing. And I think you'll see it continue. I'm not sure that 2021 will be back to 2019 numbers, but I think you'll see an improvement. The uncertainty of the of the virus and how 
how everything ends up responding to that, I think is really how you can judge what M and A is going to be like in the future, because there's just in the banking industry itself, a, a lot of M and A is driven around asset quality. And really there's a, still a lot of unanswered questions about that, about where we're at with that. Um, so far we haven't seen the losses that we were expecting back in March and April. So you feel good about that. But what you don't know is if a lot of the stimulus and PPP programs just pushed those losses down the line a little bit. So that I think has been, is going to be a hard hurdle for, for acquirers to get past is to really understand the asset quality of the the acquisition or, or the target that they're, they're looking at. So those are things I think will be a little bit of a hurdle, but I do think you're starting to see signs that it's improving. Jamie Dimon with Chase just last week or two on his earnings call was talking about how they've already projecting to start releasing reserves because they don't think they're going to have the losses that they that they were expecting back in March and April. So we're seeing a lot of improvement. I think if you see that improvement and you see improvement in the situation with the virus, you're going to see really a boom in M&A because it, a lot of that capital that I was talking about that banks had has not gone away. You don't, you didn't see in this downturn banks, bank failures and problem banks as much as you have in past downturns. And so I think there's still a lot of pent up ability and capital that can be allocated to acquisition. Yeah, I, I think the good news this year is that a lot of businesses weren't hurt quite as badly as they expected to be back in the second quarter, but uh, still lots of unknowns. And uh, exactly, hopefully, we are beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But who knows? I agree. I know it's it's definitely hard. Makes it hard when you we just went through a strategic planning process at our bank and and budgeting process and a lot of it, there's just so many unknowns. It's really hard to model with any type of certainty what the future holds. How do you value a target? What kinds of things are you prioritizing throughout your analysis? There's several things we look at. I know in the past, I kind of mentioned some of my history in a metro area. A lot of it was about earnings and, and, and driving earnings, and that's what you value when you look at a target is their their earnings potential. So those were things that we've used in the past. We try to be a little bit more strategic oriented about what we're doing. And so we look at, obviously, people because people is a, a big part of any type of acquisition you hear it at a lot of conferences I go to and, and anything you read about M&A that cultures, trying to mesh two cultures can be really tough. And so we really feel like that starts with people. We use a lot of industry ben- benchmarks. Um, I do a lot of uh, peer analysis and analytics to try to figure out specific needs that we have that we we might want to improve in and and look at those targets. I think that's important instead of just chasing earnings and chasing the loans at different banks, we really look at what what are areas that we are deficient in that we could go out and, and actually improve ourselves and make ourselves better. And so I think that's one thing. And a lot of times that reverts back to deposits because we've seen that there are branches of ours that, that can generate a lot of loans, but then how do you how do you fund those loans? And and we want to be able to do that 
organically with core deposits. And so we really put an extra value on deposits and, and less so, really less so on cost saves. You talk about that with M&A philosophy and policy, but many times that's hard to judge because we're not a bank. We don't go in and just cut people. We don't go in and make an acquisition and cut half the staff. We go in and, and we try our best to maybe repurpose you know, jobs and, and keep everybody that we can. And we're not as big on the cost saves. We're, we're more on what can it provide for our future from a strategic standpoint and, and fill some gaps where we are a little bit deficient. So that's kind of how we put a value on a target and, and prioritize. And so some of that is on the deposit, like I mentioned, but also on pricing. Net interest margin is very important to us. We feel like we have a very good margin, and that's always been a premium for us. And the reason we've been able to be successful is we have a low funding base, a low funding cost. So when we look at a target, we're looking at that as well because we don't want to go in and buy someone and they have, they're paying up for deposits, and we go in and, and have to cut interest rates. Uh, on those deposits, we're going to lose those deposits. So those are things we look at, not so much just looking at, well, are they a profitable business? And alternatively, what do you think a seller needs to be considering? How do they position themselves to get the best price? Well, first off, I think any seller needs to really know what the value of their organization is and why they're wanting to sell. And, And so if you can answer those two questions, if you, if you know where your value lies and why you're wanting to sell, then you can, you can enhance those areas. And so I would always say enhance asset quality. If, if you need to scrub your loan portfolio or, or do what you can um, from that side, you're going, you need to do that. Obviously, limit contracts. In the, in the banking industry, the, our core contracts are huge IT costs. And those sometimes, if you just entered into it, there's no easy way to get out of it. In community banking, that's the, often a hindrance to a deal getting done because there, there'd be such a big buyout of a contract. So I think you need to look at that. You need to look at your people and not have a lot of excess people. And I don't mean you need to go out and cut, necessarily cut or fire people. But if you're seeing that selling yourself is on the horizon, you maybe don't replace certain people in, in situations. So I think those three things are things I would look for as a seller. But I'd also, I would look for things like I was mentioning about that we look for that creates value. So there's a lot of core deposits in your institutions and core customers really enhancing that and selling, putting that out there to sell is, is very important because when we're looking at for something to buy, we want to see somebody that's, it's a business that's going to stay there. We, when you go in and, and you're looking at an acquisition, if you don't know if the customer base is going to stay, I can't pay you a premium on your deposit base if I don't think they're going to stay around. So those are things that I think if you're a seller, you really want to enhance it and try your best to improve. I think that's great advice. And um, you touched on this a bit, but utilizing peer analytics. So how do you utilize peer analytics and benchmarks when making an acquisition? 
banking industry is kind of lucky in that we all have to report each quarter to the FDIC a call report and and there's a lot of good information in those those reports and then there's a lot of good companies that put that information and aggregate it so that we can search and look and so what I do is I have a couple of different software packages that I can go in and and really narrow down to a target what what I want. So if it, if we're looking at an acquisition and we say, well, in this area, we would like something that has a loan to deposit ratio of 50% so that they can, they can fund our loans in a different area. I can go do that and put in those parameters and really it'll kick out a certain number of, of banks. And then I can really dig deep into their financials and see if they're, what the best option is. So I think being able to use that type of information so that it's part of the strategic planning process. When M&A is on our strategic plan for the upcoming year or the upcoming five-year horizon, we can really start narrowing that down and really start tracking these targets that we might be interested in. And I think it, it helps out a lot like I mentioned in the past, I think a lot of times it was just we you'd get a call from a consultant and say, hey, the, this bank wants to sell. Would you guys be interested? So it's more that was more reactive. So what the analytics allows us to do, it allows us to be proactive and really seek out situations and, and targets that are more beneficial to us. Yeah, it's nice to have all the data and yeah, like you said, the benchmarks available, but how would you analyze a business that's that's maybe unique and doesn't fit into a box or have an obvious peer? That's a little bit harder. Um, obviously, we about uh, three years ago purchased a title company, which you would think would be part of, you know, it is part of the banking financial industry, obviously, but it's not an area we had a whole lot of expertise in. And so we kind of struggled with that. How do you value it? What do you, what do you look for? And so then a lot of that came back to, has to come back to earning streams and analyzing their expense side. And if there were ways that we could help that, then people. So it really didn't change in what we're looking at, but it does require a little more expertise and maybe getting some outside help in that area. I read recently, uh, I don't know if you've read the book, Robert Iger's book about the former CEO at Disney called Ride of a Lifetime. And one of the things that I found so fascinating in that book was how they would value targets. When Disney purchased Marvel and when they purchased Pixar and when they purchased um, Lucas Films, and it, I, it was very interesting about when they purchased Pixar, how the things they valued versus when they did Lucas Films. And so it really is intriguing when you're into areas, how do you decide what value is? And really it comes down, I think, to your strategy, what you're trying to add. So if you can, if you can really see that this company is going to add so much benefit to you, then, then you're willing to pay a premium on that. And so I, I think that's where we, what we try to do. We've done that with the title company. One thing that we've learned and I think is not a, terrible strategy is that it's hard to purchase something that you're not really in the business of. So you just, you do need to be sure and there needs to be extra due diligence done in those areas. I think a lot about 
the fintechs that are out there now, there's, that's all the craze and, and you see that everywhere. But before you go out, there, there's examples of community banks going out and buying these fintechs and trying to implement their software or, or their solutions. And, and really, I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. Maybe a partnership is better because the, the problem with going out and purchasing it, if the people leave, then you're stuck with something that you may not know how to run. And so that's, that's something we've looked into. And so I think it's definitely people-driven and, and really understanding the business that you would be getting into. That's great advice. Um, so are you seeing any new disruptive business growth strategies emerging? I do. I think the pandemic has really accelerated digital adoption and, and community banks. Something I was listening to last, just last week was saying they estimated that it, it accelerated digital adoption by four years in, in banking. And I, I don't disagree with that because we've even seen it at our bank where a lot of times community banks have been those that would do the analysis paralysis deal where you sit around and you can analyze something to death and never implement it. And you, 2020 didn't allow us to do that because of the PPP program and, and just the work from home and those type, type of things. We had to find solutions and find them fast. And so I think that mindset um, going forward was something that is really good. What I think about is the digital branch. Um, You see that, that I think that's going to be the big disruption is finding a way, like I mentioned, to allow people not to have to go to the bank. So if we, we started asking this question, what are we requiring our customers to come to the bank for that they could do online? And if, if we don't have a solution, we need to find a solution. And so those type of things and, and companies that provide that, I think, are going to be a big disruptor because from a deposit gathering side, that's never been um, a huge part of a community bank uh, business model. But we, we're starting and a big part of our strategic plan going forward is that our phone needs to be a, a, a branch. And so well, we, we need to invest in developing that to the point, the same point we would if we went out and, and bought a, an acre and put a branch building on. If we're not willing to invest into a, our phone branch, then we need to reassess where we're at. And I think they're not, if we're not a, willing to do that, it's definitely going to disrupt the community banking business. Yeah, I've actually also read a lot about COVID pushing digital adoption forward by five to 10 years. So five it's 10, interesting. Yeah. Yes. I saw there was an article I read about a community bank up in New Jersey with the PPP program. They decided to go all in more than, than even most. And they, they partnered with, with some a FinTech that could actually process those things with, through AI and they were able to do, I mean, this bank did, I, I can't remember, I think they doubled or tripled their loan portfolio with PPP loans because they were able to do them and process them so fast when so many other banks were having trouble even getting into the SBA system to be able to do them. So if you can find, a, you know, alliances like that or partnerships like that, that does nothing but improve or help your business going forward. And we've got to be able to do that. And that hasn't always been, the, the mantra of a community bank. So that's kind of a change in mindset. 
And I know we've touched on this a bit, but beyond purchasing a, a profitable business, what are the types of things you're looking for when making an acquisition? It kind of goes back to some I've already mentioned, but I really think it needs to be part of your strategic planning process um, and, and really finding, knowing yourselves first, knowing yourself and what your weaknesses are and being honest about that. A lot of times when you're doing strategic planning, you can come up with a page full of strengths and you, for some reason you don't, we don't want to voice our weaknesses. And so I think really being able to be honest with yourself first and address those weaknesses through a strategic planning process. And then as you go out and look at target, it becomes more of what do I need and why can I, how can I enhance my strategic objectives where I focus on just getting better, not just getting bigger. And I think those are, if you can do that, those are what I'm starting to see. And I really like that a whole lot better than just waiting around for a phone call from somebody willing to sell. So I think looking forward, that's you're going to see more of that. But that really is what I like to look for in, a, in an M&A deal. Do you think it's harder to value a target virtually? I mean, I, I know from my days in M&A that it was a lot of flying around and sitting in war rooms. And uh, <laughs> so I'm interested yes. to know what it's like in a virtual world. I think it is, but it, a lot of stuff can be done through digital now. So we do a whole lot of due diligence on a, on a loan portfolio when we go in to look at, at an acquisition a lot of that now can be done through file sharing and the security of that has improved um, over the years so that you can do that. When you talk about M&A and you talk about people and culture, that's really hard to get a good grasp on virtually. Uh, you just you, you have to spend time with people to really understand what's going on. I think the numbers and I think some of the, some of the due diligence analysis that you do can be done virtually, but really the struggle is is culture and people. And so that really makes it difficult. Yeah, I imagine that can't be easy to assess from a distance. Sure. So as we head into 2021, what keeps you up at night as we look into the future? In banking, it's always been a, a, a worry, but even more so now is cyber risk. Uh, I just worry about we're becoming so much more technology driven and, and cloud-based and and things like that that is scary i don't some of us because i'm not an expert or knowing as much as i probably should about cyber risk but that really scares me that from a banking standpoint that we could really see a a big increase in in that and and cause some losses and and a lot of losses that's the way that somebody can really hurt a bank now. In the past, it was walk in and, and rob the teller. Now it's, it's log in and, and rob the anything in the bank, the wire transfer program, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's It just worries me because we are becoming so much more reliant on the technology. I just want and hope that our cyber security can keep up with that. Yeah, so much personal data out there. Yeah, every, every day you're reading about hacks and it, it yes. is a scary, it's a scary idea. One of the things that separates us from, I believe, even community banks from other banks is, is people trust us. You know, they, there's relationships there, they trust us. So 
the risk of something getting out, people's information getting out, it, it scares me to death because that could be a really big problem. Yeah, definitely something you don't want to end up in the news for. No, no. And then lastly, so what has been one positive change to come out of 2020 that you would like to see carried into the future? For us and in our situation, the biggest thing is a, a change in mindset to, to be able to embrace technology faster. I kind of have ran into a saying at a conference a couple of years ago, fail fast and fix it. And I really have kind of bought into that idea of go ahead and implement it. And if it fails, we'll fix it. But we that's never been the mindset in, in the banking industry, I don't think, especially community banking industry, because we, we've always been, well, we need to make sure that it's safe. We need to do this. We need to be in compliance. And we do need to have all that stuff, but we've got to be able to be a little more agile going forward. And I think that's what this has caused us to have to do this year. And by doing it, I think it's given us more confidence and more being more comfortable with the idea of faster implementation. Let's try things. Let's, let's not, we don't have to wait around a year to, to make sure it works. We can, we can go ahead and do it. And if it doesn't, we'll fix it. And so those, are, those mindsets, I think, has been driven a lot by the digital adoption that you talk about that has been required this year. And so I hope that keeps that up going forward. I think it's for a community bank, it's going to really be required if we want to be able to compete on a lot on a long-term scale with the banking industry. I, when I got into banking back in 1993, there were about 13,000 institutions across the country. And now that's about 5,000. So consolidation in our industry is ha- happens and, and if you're not willing to adopt and adapt quickly, then I think you're going to be one of those that ends up getting consolidated. So I think that's where we really have seen some improvement that I hope stays around as a mindset in our institution going forward. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And uh, I think 2020 has taught us all personally and professionally that it's important to be able to adapt. I agree. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Megan. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I've enjoyed speaking with you and getting your, your perspective on the M&A outlook for 2021. To all of our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as well. Please tune in next week. Until then, take care of yourselves, and I wish you all a healthy, happy, and prosperous new year. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personif. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.